0: This is the Fire Dog Podcast.
1: Welcome. My name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for listening to episode 26 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Before we get going, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and also leave us a five-star review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. We're trying to reach as many DOD firefighters as possible so that we can connect them with information that can add value to their careers and their fire departments. Your review directly contributes to this growth and helps build the show's credibility. I'd also like to take this moment to remember AJ Beck and Justin House, two Air Force firefighters whom we recently lost. If you're going through a hard time, please lean on your department and installation support systems. They're there for you and would drop whatever they're doing to give you a hand. We all go through struggles in life, some worse than others, and we all deal with them in different ways. I'm here to tell you that you're not alone and that there's thousands of people who care about you and want to help. If you need to talk to someone right now, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 and speak immediately with a trained professional. You can also contact your local chaplain, military and family life counseling program, or your unit first sergeant. If you're not comfortable reaching out to any of those resources, don't hesitate to contact us here at the Fire Dog Podcast by dropping us a message on Facebook or Instagram. Your life matters, and we're here for you if you need us. So thanks again for tuning in to listen to episode 26 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guests today are contingency training or silver flag instructors at Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida, and Anderson Air Force Base, Guam. They join me today to talk about their role in preparing firefighters to operate in real world contingency environments. Please welcome Nathan Hustler and Eric Montes. All right. Welcome, gentlemen. It's great to have you on. Great to yeah, be here. Silver Flag, something that uh, I think a lot of people are interested to hear about. You know, see what's changed, see what it's like. You know, Maybe there's some out there that want to be Silver Flag instructors, and so they're logging on to listen and find out what it's all about. I'd just like to start off by uh, having each of you introduce yourself. You know, Tell us where you're from, how long you've been in the Air Force, where you've been stationed so far. Nate, you can go first.
2: Yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Tech Sergeant Nathan Hussler. I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, or around Indianapolis. That's what I claim. Uh, been in the Air Force about 10 years. Did some time at Langley, and uh, been out at Tyndall for about three years as a Silver Flag cadre. Uh, so last year, I took over the uh, NCOIC spot, and I'll be doing that about another year before I uh, hire my replacement. So that's what I have to look forward to. not sure where I'm going next, but I'm ready for it. What about you, Eric?
0: Yeah, um, Technical Sergeant Eric Montez, right? I work at the Northwest Field over at Guam, Silver Flag Instructor. Uh, my previous assignments have been to Cannon Air Force Base for four years. I was at Kunsan for a year, Patrick for three years, and then uh, the opportunity to come to Guam presented itself, so I jumped on it, and... Glad I did. Most people would think I'd be crazy to leave Patrick because you know you're from Florida, right? Uh, you're at Florida right now, Nathan. So mm-hmm. most people don't want to leave Florida, but couldn't pass up the awesome opportunity.
1: Yeah, man, that was a hell of a move to make. Florida, <laughs> to Guam. which Guam's pretty nice though.
0: Guam's not bad at all. Uh, my first assignment was Canon, so I kind of have a good perspective on any assignment, right? N- nothing bad against Canon. Uh, my first two years I didn't know how to appreciate what I had so my last two years there were a lot better than my first two Um, and then every assignment afterwards it sounds cliche but it is what you make of it right Uh, I've loved every assignment yeah 100%
1: so how did each of you get the job did you did you was it advertised did somebody reach out to you how did it work
2: yeah so uh, both for me Uh, I knew somebody that was down here looking to hire uh, just a normal instructor I uh, got on AMS and applied Had had to actually go through an interview process, a telephone interview uh, with the flight chief that used to be down here. And, and they just selected me from then on.
0: Uh, for me, it was uh, I saw it on AMS. It wasn't initially one of my first choices. I was kind of looking at doing a one of those QA jobs out at uh, Korea or Curacao. Uh, but then this popped up and I asked some of the firefighters I worked with who have been to Guam about that assignment Uh, They strongly encouraged it, even though they didn't work as an instructor. And uh, one of the firefighters that I worked with actually knew the section chief over here. And that's how I was able to link up with him. Uh, I didn't get a formal interview, but they still racked and stacked a bunch of the packages. And thankfully, uh, I came out on top on that. So glad I did. (laughs) One of two? No, my section chief won't tell me how many applied, but... I keep asking and he said, don't worry about it. You got the job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, right fit for the job, I'm sure. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about what you guys do there. So for those of us who haven't been in a while or for those of us who have never been, um, can you guys kind of explain what Silver Flag is? What's the what's the intent of it?
2: Yeah, so. uh Silver Flag is a contingency training where we operate away from home station restraints. That's kind of like what we tell our students when they first get there. So we do a lot of uh, things kind of outside of what you would typically do either here in Garrison or probably even overseas at, at a at a home station where you kind of have the, the comforts and the norms of you know everyday money. But uh, what we do is a bear base buildup. So you're planning to build up a bear base to forward deploy uh, to a fob maybe and uh, to actually kind of get boots on the ground, not have a lot around you, have to, you know, probably build some triple S's as your fire station left, sleep in triple S's. Um, and kind of just work with very, very minimal things. So uh, it's, it's very bare, bare based type of stuff. And we participate with other
1: career fields, right?
0: Yeah. So uh, I know, Uh, Over here in Guam, we kind of make sure to drill it into all the students' heads that it's not just about establishing the fire and emergency services. It's also about uh, hitting all the objectives for establishing that base. As Nate said, um, you know, whether it's that forward-deploying base or you're just taking over an airfield, uh, we kind of – I know for myself and the other instructor I teach with, we drill it into – the students' heads that impact after deployed in place, right? And we try to explain why they are deployed in place without getting too deep into it, like why, how the scenario they're in fits the geographical location that they're at. Um, So trying to get firefighters to get out of that mentality of just focusing on the fire department and more about the entire uh, base itself and what the mission is.
1: So when we talked on the phone before we recorded, uh, you guys you know kind of talked about a few differences that there are between the sites. I'm wondering: are those differences? Do they have to do with the uh, combatant commanders or the um, you know the the regional area? So in PACAF, those guys would fight a war potentially against North Korea. Are you guys tailoring the instruction to that?
2: Yeah, I think it, it, that's definitely a thing. So you you think about PACAFs kind of dealing with PACAF type uh, theater, uh, use safety, same way. And then that Tyndall, uh, being on the mainland, we, we do get probably a lot more garden reserve than the other two, uh, silver flags. So we are dealing with, uh, a lot of different types of, of firefighters that are not necessarily waking up every day and putting the uniform on like we do. Um, so I think that that's, that plays a huge role in, um, the specifics of what we teach. Now, obviously we are, we're still teaching off the same WTS. We're all teaching the, the same curriculum um but the little bit of exercise stuff that we do in here here and there is definitely uh, it, it definitely plays off of what theater that they're in yeah so
1: with the older crowd the garden reserves guys which i say older crowd because you know most of them probably the average age is going to be a little bit older than an active duty guy do you guys as instructors try to tailor the instruction to to them like do you find yourself kind of i guess i don't want to say judging the classroom but adjusting to the the students that you have when you're teaching
0: I know for us, we get um, we don't get nearly as many garden reserve students, right? They, they mostly always go to Tyndall. We have had a handful of them every now and then, but in no way does do we change the curriculum. Uh, we may uh, spend a little more time with them because it's you know us over here in the Pacific. We don't spend that much time with them, so we may need to give them a little more instruction time one on one. But for the most part, the garden reserve students that I've came across are pretty sharp. Uh, most of them have either been civilian firefighters or are DOD firefighters. Uh, so it's not like it's their first you know, time uh, out here doing the stuff.
1: Yeah, and I didn't mean to imply that they don't know what they're doing because that's certainly not the case. What I mean is that they're older, more experienced. They work on fire departments in cities. And so you know, you're know, you not talking to a young guy right out of tech school, right? Or a staff sergeant with six years in on active duty who's you know, 25, 24 years old. You're talking to guys with a little bit of experience behind them. So that's what I meant. No disrespect to the guard and reserve
2: guys out there. If anything, you know, I'm kind of giving them props. You know what I mean? I do love to work with the guard and reserve units that we get. And not that the active duty firefighters that we get aren't great, but you know, I I could get somebody that's a New York city firefighter and somebody that's an LA city firefighter. And, and when you have two firefighters from distinct different areas of the country that probably do things very, very different in their everyday practices, and you get to bring them together and see that experience and see how they have to try to mesh the 10 days of class and try to work together as a team and figure out how they're supposed to be doing things. Um, it, I mean, I learn a lot just from the students. I'm not going to sit up here and act like I know uh, everything just because I'm a cadre. But, I mean, they're probably doing it a lot more than what we are and, uh, you know, be an active duty fire. So uh, we, we definitely get a lot from that. It's kind of cool to see some of the search and rescue techniques that they use. Um, seeing them, you know, ladder every building that they come across, things that we just don't really do in the Air Force. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, you know, even just getting active duty airmen from different parts of the country, or, you know, if we get some, we had a, a couple guys from, I think one of the England bases a couple classes ago. So, I mean, you know, it's just kind of different practices. You would think, you know, being active duty Air Force, we would kind of all, you know, pretty much do the same stuff, but that's, that's definitely not true. So, bringing teams together and see how they interact and how they had, kind of have to form. It's a, it's a really, really good experience for them and for us.
1: Yeah. How cool is it to see like, you know, a variety of experiences like that? Cause you're not going to get that kind of interaction as a tech school instructor. Uh, Cause you know, you're seeing guys straight out of basic training. Some of them, not too many probably have prior experience, but as a silver flag instructor, you get to interact with guys who do it you know, all over the world or all over the country.
2: Which is pretty cool. I don't know, right? And some of the garden reserve guys are, uh, you know, financial uh, consultants on the outside, so you know <laughs> they they could keep you in line in other ways, and just uh, teach you a little bit about firefighting as well. <laughs> and I think you'll do your taxes, for right? It. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's all about networking. So
1: <laughs> cool. Well, let's get into you know what a week of training is like. It is a week, correct? Uh, ten days. Ten days. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. You know, what do the 10 days consist of? You know, does, does it progress to something? I assume, you know, like a war exercise. I have been through silver flag. I don't want to, you know, make it sound like I haven't. I do remember silver flag, but you know, we're trying to speak to the listeners who may have not went through. So just walk us through a, you know, a training week or the training 10 days, you know, from start to finish. Eric, you can start.
0: Yeah. So, uh, from day one, it's kind of just general orientation, right? Uh, we give the students a general brief of what they're coming into. Uh, we're very lucky over here as, to have Northwest field and it kind of resembles just a what you would expect a forward operating base to look like with a training runway. So it brings the realism there. And plus they're already sleeping in tents, right? Um, but after that, each uh, craft kind of goes their own separate ways. And then we break out into our own training curriculum uh, for FIRE. FIRE has the largest WTS out there. We have the most training hours by far. I think the next closest is 50, within 15 training hours. Uh, and then that's not including any of the after hour stuff that they have to do because they're still essentially after we train uh, still Building the fire department, right? They got to man their trucks, figure out how they want everything set up, uh, figure out where they're going to establish EWSs and everything. So, other than the regular curriculum, they have the fire department side that they must set up. Uh, We drill it into their heads that they need a network. You know, Nate just brought up networking earlier, right? Um, We emphasize the need to networking while at Silver Flag because they're not, they don't quite understand that. Day one, that they're going to need additional help from other services out there uh, or what services are available to them. Uh, Usually the first thing I'll point out is, hey, do you know you have ground trans here at Silver Flag? Because I know when I first went through Silver Flag, it was just all CE, right? And then maybe a handful of services to feed you. But, uh, you know, you'll say, hey, if you need bus services, you know, ground trans is here or figure out what else they can do. After that, uh, the, the chief and the, uh, you know, whoever's the acting chief and the AC kind of have a lot of after hours work on top of the regular after hours stuff to uh, get with C2, the command and control element and figure out what exactly is going on on the base. You know, at the, at Silver Flag, we say there's just a two day exercise portion, but really the exercise starts from the day one they get there and it never stops until they get home or That last, at least for us, the last IFE that they uh, respond to. So, for an instructor, we kind of show up at seven o'clock. It always varies depending on how well the students are picking up some of the curriculum, but we don't leave till around four to five o'clock. So you mentioned WTS a couple times, both you guys did. Can you
1: can you explain what that acronym is?
0: The wartime training standard. So that is what at a minimum should be taught. The hours are uh, flexible, right? As long as you can meet the intent, Uh, but it is the standard for what you're supposed to be taught and what you should learn while attending Silver Flag, uh, bare minimum, right? So in that there's uh, like CE communications, right? Where the students learn the PRC 152s, land navigation, right? Uh, Stuff like that. I don't wanna take it all away from Nathan. I'm sure he has (laughs) stuff he wants to talk to.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Nate, go ahead. What's your take, man? Yeah, so the WTS was was built off of a combination of what all three sites needed. So uh, depending on what site you go to, I know uh, Ramstein, they have to travel like f- some 45 minutes, an hour to do some of their training. So fortunately for me here at Tyndall, I have everything right here on site where I need it convenient. Uh, so, you know, I may take, let's say we're doing uh, land navigation. That, that may be a two hour class on the WTS. It may only take me 45 minutes to teach it because I'm not having to convoy over to an area where we're going to teach them, you know, how to read a map or whatever the case is. Um, but yeah, it's kind of just to, to tack on to what a week is like or what the 10 days is like. We, we have a C2 class here, so we get our fire chief involved in that. So kind of what Eric was saying, you know, they, the fire chief deputy, depending on how many people we have in class, they're really planning for the exercise. At least that's how it is here at Tyndall. So we're kind of, you know, exercising them through the week, um, but they're planning their bear base buildup. so they've got to work with C2. Uh, plan on you know having to probably set up an EOC at some point. Um, but they're talking about uh, you know looking at fire demand zones, things where they're uh, going to have to potentially deal with a split mop if you're dealing with an attack based off of what you know your 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 threat is or what your chemical threat is. They've got to plan to build a fire station. They have to set up EWSs uh, dispersal points for their crews. So we we talk a lot about the different mop levels we go into, you know, how to wear your J fire, what you know level you should be in based off of what your threat is or what alarm condition you're in. PRC 152, like Eric was saying, that, that is a, a really, really big one, I think probably across all three sites, because it's such a foreign thing. We're used to getting Motorola's and when you get down range and you have to program your radio and maybe combat comms out there doing a great job and you don't understand what a frequency is, you're going to be completely lost. I don't know what Eric's dealt with, but we have a lot of, I say a lot, but a handful of students here and there that will reach back to us and, and say, Hey, I remember coming through your, your PRC 152 class. It was really great. Okay. Thanks. Oh, by the way, I'm over here, you know, somewhere and I forget how to do this. Okay, cool. So, uh, so, you know, I'll get on the phone and, and try to help them out as, as best I can because we are using these downrange. We know that and it's a part of the UTC. So it's something that we should be familiar with. So I know we have kind of some different pits, um, and I can get into talking about that here in a little bit. but Yeah,
1: yeah. I want to get into that a little bit later. I've got a question for you in regards to that. But I, just to talk on a couple of things, but the training pr- beforehand, you guys mentioned land nav and mm-hmm. the CE communications. So are CBTs required? Are these CBTs required before they go to the training?
2: So they should be, according to your reporting instructions, they should be completing these CBTs beforehand. So according um, to
1: AFI ten two ten, we should be doing these, right? Because it's a, like a tier one type Correct. of course right and so silver flag would be considered what like tier two i believe it's
2: considered tier
1: three tier three
2: along with like combat skills and all that stuff right so i think some of the issues with the prcs is even though it it you know may fall into the tier one training it not a lot of bases have them so grissom's holding all the utcs and more than likely like maybe your eod at your home station is going to have prcs but mm-hmm. i know our eod here at tendle they use a little bit uh, newer version of a, of a prc than what we Mm -hmm. even get in the fire UTC. So that's, that's obviously an issue. A lot of times our firefighters aren't even seeing these things until they come through silver flag. So um, it's really, really good training for them. It's good for them to see the limp of the radios. Mm -hmm.
0: And it's funny that you say that Nate, like how most people don't see it until they get to silver flag. Uh, Before I came here and I was at Patrick, uh, I had to go on a short notice uh, humanitarian assignment to go help out in Puerto Rico. And we used UTC items for that entire humanitarian mission. So when the radios came out last time, I only been to Silver Flag once, right? That was at Tyndall like eight years ago, right? So it's completely different than what it is now. We had Motorola's back then. I show up in Puerto Rico and there's these PRC 152s and we're all looking at each other like, this is what we got to use? <laughs> like, uh, I'm sorry, I clicked to the CBT one too many times, too fast. So <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're out there. And we try, I try to emphasize that to our students that, this is the equipment you're going to get. Like, you need to become proficient in it because you're not getting those fancy Motorola's.
1: Yeah. So, uh, advice to anybody out there ready to deploy might want to click through the CE Communication CBT and uh, look <laughs> at the PRC 152 stuff. Right. Um, so, you guys mentioned the fire chiefs getting together in the C2 element and having to develop a plan and and build the base and find out where the fire station and the emergency water supply goes, what kind of reference material do they use for that? Or are they just kind of going off the cuff and deciding?
0: We we have our fire chiefs utilize the uh, TTP. We show our students mainly the NCOs and above because the, the, the airmen are more focused on other things to establish the fire department. Uh, so we show the NCOs and above that uh, TTP and it pretty much lays out everything you need to know for a bear base, right? For anything under 180 80 days of operations, so the fire chief will end up using that as a template to figure out what services he may need to establish, uh, what kind of uh, planning needs to be involved. Like Nate said earlier, you know they may try to figure out they need another. They, they figure out that they need another fire station because they may not be close enough to the runway. So how are they going to set up another fire station? Uh, they going to ma- think it's going to magically appear? Because the next day, if they tell me that they need a fire station, they already coordinate it. Coordinated it. I'll say, okay, cool. What structures say when you uh, brought it up to them in C two, and they'll look at me with a uh, you know deer in the headlights look. I'll say, well, you can't just fake it. Go, go plan it. Go coordinate it. Um, so there's a lot of planning involved. Secondary water sources, right? Like, for example, if the EWSs aren't available and the hydrants, right? The hydrants at Northwest Field often go out real world, so <laughs> they can't always rely on the hydrants. Uh, we'll say, hey. Did you get with them to figure out what other water sources you have available. And then you try to explain the differences with gray water, you know, all that, uh, what they may be able to use for contingency operations. Uh, so there's a lot of planning just involved to try to get them to understand you're the fire chief. It is your responsibility to actually establish this fire department. No one's gonna do it for you. We're here to help guide you, right? We're here to teach you all the correct principles uh and help you think outside the box but it's all yours at the end of the day and especially when it comes to the two-day recovery exercise it's your baby <laughs> right yeah
2: awesome yep we do uh we do use some stuff out of the wimp as well obviously so your war bumbles they should play them but i mean i think eric would agree we don't want to give away all the secrets of what the chiefs are going to do when they come through the planners <laughs> course so uh I can't get all, all the answers in Silver Flag. No, no, right. Well,
1: <laughs> the document is AFTTP 3 3 2.41. And there so, you if you guys are going to Silver Flag, any of you listeners, and you want the answers to the tests,
0: <laughs> well, it, it's there funny you that you say that because uh, every cl- and, and Nick can agree as well. Every class is completely different, right? It's just because the type of people you get, uh, you know, especially with the Garden Reserve, as he pointed out, you got people from either civilian departments or just different uh, bases. How they operate differently. So we explain to the students: don't give anything away because they may pre-plan something, and we may have to change something up last minute, and it completely throws them off.
1: Sure, sure. I understand that a hundred percent. So you guys mentioned that you see some issues among students, one of them being unfamiliarity with the PRC 152s. Is there any is there any other issues that students have that are common? And, you know,
2: what can we do about it at home station to fix the issue? Yeah, I'm going to do my best to not make every training manager in the Air Force upset about this. But uh, probably one of the the biggest things that I see is just we can tell people aren't reading the reporting instructions before they come. So a big issue that we have is uh, firefighters not bringing their second stage regulators, which it clearly says in your reporting instructions. So if you, if you're hearing this, if you're sending your people, um, you can go to the AFCEC SharePoint site and they have current reporting instructions on there. So please read through those. I don't know if the UDMs are always, you know, given the most current copy, but obviously coming for training you know you're, you're going to need your second stage i also see a lot of aprs not coming in the bags either so um that's that's probably that's a really good place to start for me because i see that probably more often than anything else we can we can train you know and i can i can train you out of bad habits uh, all day but if you're not coming with the correct equipment and that's that's starting me issues right off the bat so if you show up without your second stage you got to do a thousand burpees while you're there <laughs>
0: uh, i would say that um Just actually conducting the uh, training at home station. And when I say that, I I myself am guilty of that as well, back when I was at my other bases, right? Uh, We have prime beef beef days, right? Prime beef days are dedicated to readiness training for the commander, right? Uh, But then sometimes, and I I know the fire department life, right? We've all been in the fire, both Nathan and I have been in the fire department. Something else takes priority, whether it's, oh, guess what? We forgot to do hose testing. It's, all gotta be done because it's all due or you know, whatever tasker, right? Uh, just actually conducting the readiness training and reaching out to somebody. Just out, it may even be outside of the fire department to teach a simple course, right? Uh, whether it's triple S, right? If you need to do learn how to set up a tent, right? Because that's something we do over here. Uh, reaching out to somebody in CE for that. Um, it's it's as simple as that. It, even reviewing the actual CBTs and not clicking through them, when you come to Silver Flag, yeah, we're going to teach you some of the stuff, but we don't have enough time in the day to make you, a prof, you know, proficient to the point where you know you can. Go teach this forever after on, right? We can only you only have so much time of the day, so many instructors, and then the students have other objectives to meet as well. So just actually conducting the training at home station. I know I'm probably gonna get hate for that, but like I said, I I myself am part of the problem as well, or was part of the problem, right? Well
2: that's simple enough. A big thing I see is is uh just properly wearing J Fire gear. So this kind of goes along with what Eric was saying, but uh, you know, I mean, that, that's tier one training. We should know how to put our fire gear on top of our mop gear, or on top of our CPR or JS list. I mean, that's that's a fairly basic thing. I, I don't know if they're still doing that in tech school. I think I maybe remember doing that in tech school. It's been a while, um, but I mean, if if we're if we're sending firefighters downrange and they get themselves, or not really themselves, but if someone puts them in a situation where they're gonna have to go into mop four and potentially even go and firefight, uh, maybe not likely to do interior, but if they're going to go into mop for non-firefighting or firefighting, they need to know how to wear that gear. It's designed to protect them in those circumstances. And if they don't know how to properly do that, they're exposing themselves. Um, so, I mean, we do a, a fairly extensive J fire class at Tyndall. I'm sure probably all three sites do it because it is a WTS requirement that we have. Uh, we do interior burns with our students and J fire. So they get to see, uh, how taxing it can be both physically and mentally to have to to wear that gear, all that extra heat, all that extra weight and go in there. And, and then not only that, but we, and I, and I think Eric, you guys are doing this out at Guam too, but I, I know that we take our students out of a building after, after fighting fire and pulling dummies and tell them like, Hey, you can't pull your second stage regulator out of your face. You're still in, you know, you, you still may be in it. Right. So you've got to, you've got to go down. You've got to maybe process through a CCA or do some sort of a emergency decom, but you can't come out and just start ripping your gear off. And that's, that's just an exerciseism, i think that we probably do in, in the air force is as soon as you step out of that idlh you want to start taking your stuff off and you know in a burn, you can't do that uh, you're going to have to process through and make sure that you're not contaminated or else you're you're going to be doing a lot a lot of damage to yourself depending on what it is yeah man that's a great point excellent point
1: i don't know if you guys listened to the episode we had with uh, travis bender and chris boikley they talked a lot about uh, you know, creating these mental models of uh, doing the right thing while you're on an emergency scene, and you know, if, if you practice something like taking off your second stage regulator in a uh, chemical environment, you know, you're going to do it if you're in a chemical environment. You know, you practice how you play, right? So, yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. You know, that uh, you know, because in a typical structure fire, you're going to be able to, for the most part, take that thing off once you exit ideal H. You know, not not the case for a J fire or right. chemical environment. It's pretty so. From what I'm hearing, it just sounds like people need to do their training, do their readiness training, do what they're supposed to do, pay attention to the CBTs, learn about the radios.
0: Um, Am I right? Yeah, there's been discussions where, hey, can Silver Flag kind of just be done at home station and then you evaluate uh, whether or not they meet all the requirements and then give Silver Flag credit? I don't ever see that happening Uh, just because what we teach at Silver Flag is all the – skills that are just aren't being taught or being conducted at home station. So unless it does get fixed, right, you're always going to be sent to silver flag before a deployment, preferably before deployment or every three years, right? Mm -hmm. So
1: we cover a lot of things that people can work on in regards to preparing for silver flag and some issues that could be fixed home station before they arrive. Is there anything else that we
0: want to mention? Yeah, I'd like to mention just um, understanding what some of the other AFSCs bring to the table uh, in regards to both Silver Flag and that contingency operation. Uh, For example, right, when someone hears of a fire department, a firefighter, people expect you to do it all, right? You're the jack of all trades, master of none is what I always hear, right? Uh, So everybody expects... And when I say everybody, like the C2 element kind of expects the fire department to have the same capabilities as you do back at home station because they don't know any better. Right. But that's not that's not the case. Uh, so just having an understanding of when you can delegate some of the other responsibilities to other agencies. Uh, for example, EM, right? EM, they're also uh, capable to do some hazmat stuff. So instead of trying to stretch yourself thin and also cover hazmat emergencies, maybe just completely turn that over to them, right? Um, just just knowing what people are capable around you, right? What you have available, the resources.
2: Just to kind of tack onto that, I, th- I think it's on the flip side, it's also important that the other crafts are stressed the same thing. And and so sometimes you don't always see that, but you think about well, you know, let's say we're working with EM and, and EOD during an attack. All right, well, we should be the incident commanders on scene, right? Two or more agencies. So a lot of times you may see EOD want to just kind of freelance and deal with that on, you know, themselves. And that's not the way that, that you should do it, and that's not the way that you would do it. So you know, working with the other agencies, I think that's huge, not just in the C2 element, but, you know, realizing the the capabilities, like Eric was saying, of, of all the other crafts out there, and for us as fire, that's important to, to realize, like, what do I have out here that I can utilize? Can I train, you know, some people to be auxiliary firefighters if need be? Uh, can I train some dirt boys to make some fire breaks if, you know, if we've got, you know, something pop off, they, they're trained in heavy equipment, you know, so, so knowing kind of what you have to work for you is also important. And, and you're going to learn something like that in silver flag because you're, you're almost forced by us to work with all these other crafts where you would normally just kind of keep to yourselves, you know, how we are, we, we were kind of reserved. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great point.
1: Yeah. That's what the expectation is going to be. If you are in a deployed environment, especially Bear base, like every, all hands on deck, man, uh, grab a, grab a weapon and go hit your post and do sentry duty. I think the same thing applies with some of those CE trades like, hey, do you know how to operate a 10K forklift? Can you move this rock from here to here? Yeah, I think that's a great point to drive home. So transition a little bit with COVID-19, everybody's changing the way they do business, right? Which I'm sure Silver Flag is in the same boat. So what kind of adjustments have you guys made as a result of the pandemic?
2: Well, I'll I'll take this one first. So uh, we're normally doing more classes than the other two sites uh, because they're teaching rescue and a, a couple other things. Uh, so we, I mean, we were off for almost six, seven months, not able to teach classes. We got a little bit behind on that, but now that we are back to doing it, we're still kind of taking a hit as far as our numbers are concerned. My max class size used to be 24 students with the ability to flex up a a few. If I had a couple of firefighters that, you know, were short tasking to Korea, uh, right now my max class size is 12 and I have a class on the ground right now that I only have nine firefighters here. So that uh, it, it is a huge impact on us to have that diminished number. Because when we're talking about, you know, being able to do, I mean, even just staffing the trucks on exercise day is going to be more taxing on everyone that's involved. Um, and then another thing is obviously the the six foot distance that we try to keep. Uh, I don't know if Eric, I don't know if you've taught any classes since the, the pandemic, but we're having to wear our masks all the time. So even when we are up in the front of the class instructing, we're wearing our masks. Students are wearing our masks um, as much as, as they possibly can. So uh, it's a, you know, we're following CDC guidelines, which is what we're supposed to do. Uh, but it is uh, it, it's a it's a lot different. The training not, is not affected as much as far as what we're actually doing, um, aside from just the, you know, the, the hit on the numbers of students that we have. I mean, even having, you know, 12 students, maybe a little bit more realistic in the exercise Uh, sense of what your your bear base or your forward deployment may look like but as far as you know trying to keep the readiness numbers up from the fire perspective it's it's going to be hard to kind of catch up the last time that we have and i i can't really see it changing anytime soon unless you know covid19 just goes away and and i don't think that's going to happen so uh, our numbers at least at tyndall will probably stay down for a little bit and and in the long run i think that's gonna that's gonna hurt
0: us uh yeah just like nate mentioned uh We haven't started class yet. We're looking to start class back in January. Uh, We had a different couple of COAs, though, where we would teach MTTs as long as the bases had the equipment, right? We can bring some of the equipment with us, but some of the heavier items or some of the items that can't be transported, the base had to have. So we originally were looking at doing one in Korea, but their trainers were down and we can't teach without burning, right? That's one of the critical items that you do in Silver Flag, that ended up getting canceled. Uh, however, now we're looking. We're getting ready to go to Yakota to go teach a Silverfly course there. You know, we're trying to do our best with what we can. Unfortunately, you know, for us, we've had to go without class a little longer. You know, they they started class already, uh, but even once we do start class, our class size is has gone from eighteen to seven now with the protective measures. Right, and Nate said it already. With nine people, it's already tough. Right uh seven firefighters it's gonna to be tough, but they're gonna to have to make it work. obviously we're not gonna put them through as much as what we would do a normal class, but we're still gonna keep the quality of training up there right that that will never uh be lowered
1: yeah, so twelve at Tyndall i mean twelve you're you're talking about an engine, two crash trucks, uh command and control rescue uh we've been doing tanker yeah, just to have that extra water on scene. and so with with seven I mean maybe an engine crash truck two crash trucks and a chief two something like that you use a p19 bravo or something.
0: Yeah, we have a p19 bravo uh two alphas and a, i mean this, this is just what we have but they'll probably end up using the new uhp we just got and maybe the alpha and the tender is what they'll use is it a uhp like a riv the rosenbauer the uh so we just got a new rosenbauer the uh what is it the new p9 the uhp p19 is what they call it so we'll be looking at implementing that for the first time in our next class. That thing looks like a Cadillac, right? But I don't know how long it'll last on these uh, deployment roads out there at Northwestfield.
2: So I have an interesting plug. Uh, So we're right now we're using these, you know, humongous UHP uh, strikers, which are, are not even deployable. We used to have three of them. We sent one of them to Africa like a year and a half ago and they had to take that thing over on a ship. Couldn't get it on an airplane. Uh, So, uh, when we're talking about readiness and for deploying bear base type of stuff, probably not practical to be using those UHPs that we have, uh, but this is kind of neat. We do have the new uh, E1 air transportable uh, P19. From my understanding, uh, they are sending one of them to California for the uh, maintenance tech school or whatever so that they can kind of learn how to work on that truck. And the only other one that I know of that staying stateside is is here at Tyndall Silver Flag. So uh, right now we're, we're working on trying to put a lesson plan forward so that we can maybe probably not certify, but we can actually, you know, expose the students that are coming through because so all the other ones are already downrange. And I don't know if they're in service yet or not, but once they are, nobody's going to be able to train with them unless you're either downrange or coming through, you know, 10 little silver flags. So that's a, that's going to be a pretty neat thing that we can look forward to here in the, in the short future. What do you think about that truck? What's your first impression? Uh, so I haven't, I haven't got to play around with it yet. Uh, let's see next no two weeks from now e1 is actually going to come out and, and run all of our cadre through the course so I have, i've been instructed to not even look at it uh because <laughs> i don't want it to break but um but yeah I'll, I'll let you know once we get to play around with it a little bit i think it's going to be pretty cool it kind of looks like an old p19 in person obviously they can, can drop the suspension down so they can get it on all, all this other cool stuff um but yeah i'll be interested to see it it's it's not uhp so it's going to be a little bit different from what we've been training here at Tyndall for the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, look, look forward to that thing hitting the streets. I think it looks cool. But, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully it works just as good as it looks. But, you know what I mean?
0: For for people who are interested in, like, uh, looking for some of that material, it's actually on the FES SharePoint. There's, like, a lot of good useful information on it already on there. Uh, and I know we kind of incorporated it into our regular P19 class where we show them how to do the uh, all that stuff for – to make it transportable. Uh, So there's a lot of good information on there if you're just curious about it, because the only time you're going to see it is at Tyndall. Well, I think they may have one at USAPI also, but uh, unfortunately we do not have one.
1: So Nate, we talked before, you were talking about the use of foam on JP-8 fires at the Tyndall flag site. So can you explain, you know, why that's significant and...
2: Yeah, so a uh, couple couple of reasons. I, when I got here three years ago, we were training with with uh, JP eight and foam in the pit, uh, and I and I thought it was fantastic training because I don't know about you guys, but I've never got to use foam in, in a training environment. Uh, some people maybe they have, but kind of frowned upon. Um, so that was aside from the PRC one fifty two. That was probably the most valued thing that we had uh, coming through Tyndall Silver Flag was actually being able to teach these firefighters how to use foam on a fuel fire, <laughs> which is, again, is kind of rare. I think it was, um, was it Travis a couple of years ago that had that Cessna flip upside down and when the, the ribs got on scene, they put water on it. So, you know, we talked a little bit about exerciseisms earlier on, but, you know, when, you, when you're when you constantly training with water and then something happens and, you know, and your muscle memory is saying, all right, I guess I'm putting water on it. Well, that's not always going to be the case. So I think, you know, being able to train with, with foam is uh, it's an important thing really for any of us to do, because it's setting that mindset that, hey, I can use this. I've trained with it before, so I don't really need to be scared of it. Right. So kind of a little bit of a backstory. Uh, we were having some issues with too much water in our pit. We had a lot of rain a couple of years ago. Uh, so we were having to uh, actually try to burn off some of the water with uh, incinerators. Then Hurricane Michael hit, took our pit down for a little bit. So for about a year, uh, we were training on a a, a Kitty helo trainer, which was just not, I mean, that's kind of all that we had to do aircraft training which was still a part of our WTS. Uh, so probably uh, about a year we've been back training in the pit, which has been good. Uh, but we've been just using propane and not using any foam. So Congress slapped us down and said, hey, you guys aren't going to be, you're not going to be trained with foam anymore. It's just not safe for the environment. And, you know, Air Force Fire, we've been constantly trying to create this foam that we think that, you know, is, is going to be safe for us to use and this other PFOS, PFO stuff. But uh, the pit that we have right now is is actually pretty cool. We can, you know, have some ground fires in there. It's all it's all propane, like I said. Um, but, you know, the ground fire, they can kind of spread. So if they're coming in using turrets or even using hand lines, they can kind of push the flames around a little bit. And it's kind of supposed to emulate as if you were actually doing fuel fire. But on the up and up, uh, we did just recently get an approval from Congress, there's like five DOD bases that are gonna get to use foam and Tyndall is one of those bases. So right now I think we're still kind of trying to work out all the little kinks. It's way above my pay grade. Um, but once they tell me that I can use foam again, we're gonna start putting JP8 back in that in that pit and using foam. Uh, which i think it like i said is really really great training so when we're talking about uhps i think it's super important because a lot of a lot of air force firefighters are not sold on on the uhp yet right the ultra high pressure if you have a rivet at your base you're probably like this thing is garbage you know you can't even hose off the the pad with it without wind blowing it everywhere but when you're actually putting foam out of that thing it, it does a lot more and when, when you're actually pulling hand lines and and shooting foam out of a out of a hand line even with ultra high pressure it makes a huge difference so that's something that like I said I think that that training was so great for us at Tendo when we used to do it because we could sell a lot of people on UHP and I think we were I like to think that we were kind of turning the attitudes a little bit um, towards believing in the stuff that we have and believing in the you know the, the things that we may have to use on an everyday basis so um, it's a little bit different probably than how we were trained to use foam with the, you know, the rain down, bank down, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's not as much about kind of creating that blanket and trying to not to disturb it. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit different technique. You're wanting to use a little bit straighter stream, uh, you know, slower sweeps, kind of just, just kind of some weird stuff. But if you've never done that and you've never got to, to, to use it, you're not going to know. And if you're trying to use those old me- old methods of not using an ultra high pressure system, it's, it's, it's it is a little bit different. It's slightly confusing. Um, so once we get that back, I think that's going to be great. Now, with talking about that new E-1 air transport will not be in UHP and and the likelihood of using UHP downrange, probably not. Uh, but, you know, going back to home stations, that's definitely some, some super value training, I think, that we can provide. And with being only five DOD, uh, you know, sites and us being one of them, that's that's big for us here at Tunnel. It sounds like UHP would be a good idea for
1: a, a bear base, just in terms of water conservation. But, uh, you know, I could be off on that. Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked uh, relatively extensively on this podcast, on other episodes about UHP. And I'm actually trying to get an expert on to talk UHP, not to sell anybody, just to bring a scientist that can speak from a, uh, a neutral place, a scientific place to kind of explain the technology. So we'll talk with Eric, man. You, you mentioned to us joint training. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious, who, who are you training with, I guess, beyond Air Force folks?
0: So it really just depends on who we have available at the Silver Flag site during the course. Sometimes we'll get um, some Navy Seabees out there as well. But really just the in regards to joint training, it was just um, all the different agencies that we actually have the opportunity to, to play with, right? I think a lot of us have experienced a lot of exercise simulations or, or stuff like that where you request an agency and then somebody comes up to you, taps you on the shoulder, say, hey, they, they, uh, they're they in route or, you know, don't worry about them. They said they got something else to do. Uh, over here, there's none of that. So if on an exercise, a, you know, the command element requests an EOD personnel because they figured out that the fire they just put out on a vehicle had uh, V-I-E-D on it, uh, you know, they all immediately evacuate and they say, OK, we're, we're, we're calling EOD. And I'll stare at them and I say, OK. We'll call EOD and then they'll uh, stare back and it'll be a completely new experience for them because they're not used of actually going through the steps to notify another agency where they didn't take the steps to figure out how they would get a hold of these people and that environment, right? That contingency environment. So they will experience that for the first time, get to see how an emergency will actually unfold you know, a lot of us will just sometimes say, Hey, you know, call EOD. Okay. EOD already pre-staged at this building anyway, because they knew this exercise was going to happen. They get here, they do their uh, task and then it's over within a couple of minutes. Right. Whereas over here, it takes the full duration, you know, hour, hour two hours to completely unfold an emergency and figure out what's going to happen and what goes on. If, Command realizes, okay, we don't need certain resources here anymore, so I can send some people back to cover the flight line while I stay back for the uh, whole IC element. And it's not just EOD, I I just use that as an example, right? But we do it with uh, EOD, EM, uh, services, ground trans, and uh, some of the heavy equipment and structural uh, apprentices out here. It all depends on the emergency, but we force them to actually take those steps that they say they're gonna take and act on them right so for instance on our helo crash right um one of the days we have a helo crash and they go do their portion and then there's one body where it's uh dead on arrival right uh, limbs everywhere and everything so we ask the ic what what do you do do you touch the dead person or do, do you call do you know who to call afterwards and a lot of the times what we see is people don't understand services handles the mortuary affairs portion, right? Or that they have a search and recovery team specifically for that. So it's a our students see a lot of, they see a lot of different capabilities that we bring to the fight, right? It's not just, Hey, services only serves food out of the range. They give me my MRE and water bottle. That's not the case at all. Uh, they do a lot more that goes unnoticed or goes underappreciated, right? Uh, the same with ground trends. We have an exercise set up where it's a low ang- expeditionary low angle rescue, and it's a Humvee that's ended up rolled over down in a ditch. Well, security forces just called and said they still need that Humvee because they only have so many assets. So I see the, the commander's telling you that you need to figure out how to get this. Do you know who you call? And then we actually have Ground Trans come over with their wrecker and recover the vehicle. And IC's there obviously for the IC element to make sure no one gets hurt, to make sure that they can get down there safely hooked up. So we try our best to eliminate any simulations out here and to actually get that joint agency exercise because the feedback we get at the end of the course and also during, after any kind of exercise is that this stuff isn't happening back at home station. And I I can understand why it's not, because everybody has, everybody thinks they have something important going on, right, to them, right? A firefighter, right? I have something going on that may be safety related or that an emergency just happened. Don't bother me, right? We're going to the flight line, IFE, some engine went down, right? So I guess to kind of help better show students that, you know, you can rely on other agencies to do other tasks, we try to bring that over here with that joint training.
1: Okay. So when you say do- joint training, interagency inter- within the Air right. Force. Okay. So I just, I misinterpreted or I misunderstood when you said that, which is still awesome. That's an awesome thing to integrate just as you were, if you were at a bear base, you mentioned Navy Seabees though. Navy Seabees are basically the uh, naval equivalent to engineers, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I know each of your, your times are going to be coming up soon. You know, for those who may be interested, you know, explain what it's like as an instructor. I mean, you've already kind of alluded to what what it's like. Is there anything else worth mentioning that uh, somebody should know?
2: Yeah, so I'll just advertise my position. So uh, we'll be hiring a tech at at Tyndall Silver Flag site. I think the ad is probably going to go out probably by the end of this year. Next year, probably about mid-year next year, we'll be hiring a staff. Uh, So if anybody's out there that's interested, uh, look for it on AMS. But... I would say probably one of the biggest words of advice that I could give off of my, my time here as an instructor is be, be ready to work. Kind of like what Eric was saying, you know, they, they show up at, at seven o'clock in the morning, work till five o'clock in the evening. It's it's not cushy and easy like you would think that it would be. You've got to come and do work. I know at Tyndall, we're, our, we're a part of a, of a Red Horse detachment, uh, but it's all in, uh, NCOs, senior NCOs out there. So, you know, you don't... This is bad, but you don't have any airmen to say, "Hey, go out and do this." If you know if we don't have students here to you know put the trucks back in place, do this other stuff, set up for a class. It's like we, you know, we're doing that. We, we as the NCOs, we're doing that stuff. So, um, you, you have to come kind of hungry. You have to come to want to work. And and really, what we're going to be looking for is somebody that wants to make the career field better and make a difference. We're always looking for fresh ideas. I always tell my my new cadre when they come in, like, "Hey, don't think that you are new and that you should be quiet. You're coming from." you know, a base where maybe you have done things a little bit differently than what anybody else has done things. Uh, maybe you have, uh, you know, some bear base experience that, that you can have and say, hey, this, you know, I've done this downrange. That's It's not the way that we do things. And then, you know, we're going to listen and then we'll make adjustments because, you know, across the three sites and, and, I'll, and I'll speak for all of us, we want to give the most valued and relevant training that we can. And if we're training something that nobody is doing, then we're missing the mark. Uh, So, yeah, we are looking for some experience. I mean, we would like to, I I personally don't have a lot of uh, good deployment experience. They still hired me. Uh, Maybe it's from my charming good looks. I don't know. But uh, I know a a lot of the, a lot of my, uh, my guys, you know, they've, they've been to Jordan, Africa, uh, Syria, Kyrgyzstan. So uh, they've set up fobs, they've set up bear bases. They've done a lot of this stuff with very minimal equipment and the stories that they, that they tell in class is, is second to none and it's it's added value to the training that we give. Um, so it's kind of busy. You know, every single day I go to work, I have an idea of what I would like to get accomplished and none of that happens ever <laughs> because you get in, you know, whether you're on an up week with class or not, uh, you just get in there and there's just so much stuff to be done. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed. I think it's fun. This is uh, probably one of the better jobs in, in Air Force Fire. It's kind of a hidden gem. I think it's not considered a DSD. It's just kind of a special duty because you are staying, you know, within your career field. Us at Tyndall here, we're T-coded, so you're not uh, going to be called upon to deploy, or you shouldn't be, unless you know World War III is kicking off. Um, but we do have um, a lot of opportunities to, you know, go to go to a good fellow for classes. So we're, you know, we, we've secured some, you know, officer two, officer three types of spots. So, you know, we're still uh, encouraging that, you know, the the firefighters out here, the cadre out here are attempting to continue the progression of their careers. So you don't come here and do three or four years and then get back into the career field and be completely lost. Uh, here at Tyndall, we do a uh, 36 months, uh, but you do have the option to extend for four years. Not everybody really gets that option, but I haven't ever seen anybody uh, be turned down from it. So it's a controlled tour. You know, you're going to be here for, you know, three, three, two, four years traveling a little bit, not as much as the other two sites, but you know, this Panama city is built back up again for a while. It was a a non-accompanied orders. So I think that turned a lot of people off. We hired, we hired two guys within the last year and we didn't get quite as many applicants as we normally do. So if people are interested in the job, it's just like a normal base again i mean they're still rebuilding stuff but the site for the most part is is up and going we're back to doing what we're supposed to be doing mission wise yeah i was stationed at tunnel that was my first duty station i
1: absolutely love that place it's a fantastic place to live it doesn't have any trees like it used to from what i've seen but it's still probably a beautiful place and there's still a beach eric you have anything to add
0: Uh, yeah uh, if uh people are interested in the position over here Besides Silver Flag, we also teach rescue, so we'll end up traveling for that. But we only do that during typhoon season when Silver Flag has to shut down for safety reasons. Kind of like what Nathan said, you are essentially a fire department still. You still have to do all of the programs, right? You have to do hose testing, PPE, uh, all the SCBA stuff. Unfortunately, we don't get to have some of the manning that they have. I'm really jealous about what... They have over there at Tyndall because everything's on site or they have uh, more people. So if you end up wanting to apply to the PACAF's position, uh, just understand that you'll end up working long days. Not that they don't work long days, right? But it's only mainly two of you uh, trying to maintain a lot of the programs because the section chiefs are usually tasked with a lot of different taskers, right? Uh, Mass arms are just constantly getting hit with different things over here. Uh, we're unique. and I, I don't know if you're attached to the CRG over there, Nate, but we're over here. We're attached to the uh, contingency response group. So sometimes we'll get interesting requests. Like we recently were requested to load a one of our P-19s and fly around with it to show capabilities and stuff. So, uh, and actually land on the runway over here at Northwestfield. So it was the first time in seven years that we got to land a fixed wing aircraft over there. We were supposed to go support another training exercise off to one of the islands out there in the Pacific. So you'll get different opportunities, but the primary mission will always be silver flag here, just like everywhere else, right? We're trying to maintain the skills uh, for the warfighters fighters out here. But come hungry, right? It's not an easy job by any means, but just like Nate said, I love it. It's been one of my favorite jobs. You get to interact with so many different people, uh, get to see how people operate differently. And as you've seen it all unfold, it's a lot of things that you can put in your own toolbox. Uh, so then that way, when you go back to the fire department, you're like, you come with a lot of knowledge that you just saw saw from uh, different classes, right? And that's one of the biggest takeaways. Yeah, I've
2: learned so much about CE in the three years that I've been. I mean, there's things that I probably should have known as I got here as a staff that I just didn't learn. I Have my last base and being able to walk away with that knowledge. If you're coming here as a staff, and maybe even as a tech, I mean, you're gonna know, you're gonna know a lot of probably what your peers are out out in the field. So, I'm not by any means saying that that's making us better than anybody else, uh, but you acquire a lot of really useful knowledge out of what what CE and FSS's capabilities are, you know, even out of everyday you know home station base. Man, the the
1: opportunity it sounds fantastic, and like you guys alluded to, I think it would make you just a better. NCO, better firefighter, better engineer. Following your time there, so you guys are going to go back to the force, and you're going to be a hell of a resource. You know, I'd love to have either one of you or any of your cadre deploy with me. Like, hey, show me how this radio works, dude. You know, give us a <laughs> class real quick. You know, well, guys, I really appreciate your time. Uh, shared a lot of valuable information in regards to Silver Flag. Is there any final thoughts before we wrap this
0: up? I got one. I usually say it anytime I can. It's just to make sure, always check up on your people, right? Um, over here, there's only three firefighters assigned to Red Horse over here. Uh, so we're very small, tight knit. But I mean, I remember back when I was at a department, I'd always just tell people to check up on everybody. You know, I know there was recently another death in the career field. So, you know, just reach out to somebody, ask ask how someone's day is going. And it might be the highlight of their week. You know, you never know. Just we're all in one big family, right? One big Air Force Fire Department family. Uh, let's treat each other that way.
2: Yeah, that's that's great. Eric. Mine is a, a little, on a little bit different note, but I, you know, we kind of, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but we're constantly looking for feedback. So, uh, you know, if if you've deployed, we get feedback from every class. But if if you've deployed recently, you know, Bear Base. And you think that you have some information that may help make our class a little bit better if you've been through the class, like I was kind of saying earlier and say, like, hey, we don't we don't really do that downrange. Or, you know, we, hey, we did this. I know you guys teach it this way. This is what we did and it worked or whatever. So again, we want to make this training the best that we can for our career field. We, we are here for our career field, right? So we want to make them the best warfighters that we can. If they have to come through and see us in the uh the process of getting over there to do you know what they've been trained to do. We want to make that the best training that we possibly can. You know, a lot of people I don't really think like to come through a silver flag, and I, I think that we all three sites have done a fantastic job of making this training a little bit uh, more enjoyable. We also obviously want it to be as relevant as it can. I know when like when I first got here, we were still teaching like how to call in a nine line. And I think we started asking the question, of was like, is any Air Force firefighter ever called in the nine line? If you're out there and you're listening, please email me. My, I'm on the global because I would like to know, because that's something that we kind of took out of our curriculum. Um, because I just don't think it was relevant anymore. You're typically, you know, probably going to be with an army unit or somebody who's, who's going to be a little bit more capable of doing something like that. So uh, we're constantly changing what we do based off of the feedback that we get from the career field. So please throw your ideas at me. I'm on the global. I'm sure Eric would take ideas too. You know, we, we, uh, You know, we're teaching the same stuff, but we're all a part of the process of of changing it and making it better. So we want to make it, you know, we want to make it what everybody else wants it to be within reason. That's my pitch is shoot me an email, get a hold of me some way, shape or form, and let me know if you've got some, some information out there that I could use to make our training uh, better than what it already is. And it's already fantastic training.
1: Yeah, man, good plug. And, you know, we're transitioning kind of to a more enduring posture for the most part in our Contingency places, you know, and so, you know, we may need to adjust our training accordingly. Not to say that we don't need bear base type of training because we certainly need that, but uh, you know, the the Department of Defense focus is kind of shifting to near peer advers- adversaries,
2: and does that change the way we do business as firefighters? Maybe. So we're definitely uh, reevaluating, uh, kind of to allude to what you said, Matt. I mean, we are we're taking into consideration that sustainment is is probably kind of the direction that we're headed. And so how can we kind of posture our training, uh, not as much about, you know, ordering UTCs for a bear base, but arriving at a base that may already have some stuff and and Mm -hmm. how to get what we need and and how to build on that. So, yeah, that's a great point. And we're tracking that stuff, too.
1: Well, gentlemen, again, I really appreciate your time. A lot of good information.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: All right, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of the fire dog podcast. You can find more content and episodes just like this regularly posted on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the fire dog podcast and on our Instagram page at the fire dog podcast. That is the fire D a W G podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow so that you can stay plugged into every episode. Lastly, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and coworkers on social media or at the firehouse. This is Matt Wilson with guests, Nathan hustler, and Eric Montes until next time. Stay safe.